This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and the author of Find Your Happy at Work. In that book, and on this podcast, I've often said that listening is a superpower for your career. But just because listening is important doesn't mean it's always easy. Today's guest, Oscar Trimboli, spent years in the Australian marketing and tech industry, but these days he's a coach and consultant and researcher helping leaders to become better, deeper listeners. Oscar also has a podcast called Deep Listening, and he wrote a book called How to Listen. It's based on his extensive research. The book describes what listening is all about, and it's full of practical tips for making you a more effective listener. Oscar will share some of those tips with us. He'll describe how to focus your attention and how to get beyond the habits that may stop you from being a truly great listener. And he'll explain how we all can treat silence like another word. Oscar, welcome to Jazzed About Work, and um, thank you so much for coming here to tell us about your really interesting book, How to Listen. But uh, like you, I'm always interested in the backstory. I like to know where our guests are coming from and and uh, how they got to where they are. So um, before we dig into your book and listening, would you tell us a little bit about how your career developed and how you became so passionate about listening? Bev, to understand that, I think you need to go to a board meeting in April of 2008 in Sydney, Australia. It was a video conference between Sydney, Seattle, and Singapore, and it was the annual budget setting process between uh, the Microsoft Australia subsidiary, where I was a marketing director, and in our room locally, uh, there were eight people, many of them from finance, including my senior vice president, Tracy. And the meeting was scheduled for 90 minutes. And these meetings are famous for running over time because they are the budget setting meeting. You can't leave the meeting without a budget agreed and a budget set. Now, something weird happened, Bev, at the 20-minute mark. At the 20-minute mark, Tracy, my vice president, looked me straight in the eye and said, Oscar, I need to see you immediately at the end of this meeting. Now, Bev, I did not listen to another word that happened in the meeting. The only yeah. thing I could, the only thing going through my head is I'm getting fired and how many weeks of salary have I got left? <laughs> and, as, <laughs> and as I kind of kept in that mindset, I had a little scratch pad on the side where I was kind of calculating how many weeks of salary. Something miraculous happened. The meeting actually finished at the 70-minute mark. And uh, my execution got brought forward. Tracy asked me to close the door as everybody left. And as I walked back after closing the door to sit next to Tracy, she said, you have no idea what you did at the 20-minute mark, do you? And I thought, wow, not only am I getting fired, 
<laughs> I have no idea oh. what I did to get fired. As I sat down next to her, she looked me carefully in the eyes and said, Oscar, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. And in that moment of profound, insightful listening on Tracy's part, Bev, the only thing going through my head is, woohoo! I haven't been fired. Yeah. <laughs> and thus, the quest towards 100 million people listeners started way back in 2008. And to honour Tracy, and as I say in the book, the difference between hearing and listening is taking action. Uh, I've been coding how to listen in our listening quiz into three books, into a set of playing cards, into a jigsaw puzzle game, into a podcast, into a deep listening challenge. And, and that tells you everything you need to know about the backstory, which we actually spend quite a bit of time talking about the importance of listening to the backstory in the book, as you mentioned. Yes, yes. Well, the book, I, I know you've done lots of research and, and, and you have... Um, a lot of activities going on, but I'm interested in, in partly uh, how all of those things led to the book, because it sounds like uh, you didn't just sit down and write it. You listened as part of the preparation and the creation of the book. Is that right? Yes, uh, I, I got an email in July of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic and uh, it was from somebody who'd read my previous two books and listened to the podcast and said, Oscar, you need to write the most comprehensive book around listening in the workplace. And it kind of was like a punch in the face, no different to that moment where Tracy sat down and said, you know, code the way you listen. And so what I did from that point on, we'd collected over 18,000 people's listening barriers through the research we do continuously. We're up to 23,000 now. But we also did a deep dive on 1,410 people that we have been tracking for the last five years. We also did some research with a group of people who didn't know me didn't know the work of listening at all. That's to role model one of the key components of what we talk about, which is listening to what's not said. So talk to a group of people about what they struggle with when it comes to listening in their workplaces. And we also listen to this crazy thing called Google. And um, we spend a lot of time listening to what are people searching for when it comes to their listening searches as well. In parallel, we have a group of people known as the Deep Listening Ambassadors who are part of this quest to 100 million deep listeners, and they were giving feedback on the title, the structure, the stories, the statistics, and there were over 500 people who gave feedback on what was written as we went along. So the book is a community effort. It's not just me. It's a group of people who are really passionate about improving their listening in the workplace, but it's also a group of people who don't even think about listening in the workplace as well. And as somebody said in a recent review, just the process of writing the book was role modeling listening, and it's probably the deepest compliment somebody could pay me. Well, that's why I was so impressed by it, that from the beginning of the book, 
you describe the listening process that led to the book and you know how you responded. It was a display of listening. But let me uh, back up a little bit. And just to put our listeners in the picture, you talk a lot about deep listening. And I, I know, of course, that's a term we've all heard, but people use it in different ways. When you talk about deep listening, how do you define it? What's your idea of deep listening? Yeah, I think good listeners listen to what is said and great listeners, deep listeners, notice what's not said. And when we know the neuroscience of listening, the differential between the speaker's thinking speed and their talking speed, there is a nine times delta. So people can think on average at 900 words per minute. In complex, collaborative, constrained workplaces, Bev, they can be thinking at up to 1,600 words per minute. Yet they can only say between 125 and 150 words per minute. So the very first thing that somebody says is not what they think and unlikely to be what they mean. A deep listener listens to what's not said and a deep listener listens to what they think and what they mean rather than merely what they say the first time. You said somewhere in your book that the uh, 125-900 rule is mm. maybe the biggest um, insight that your clients sometimes take away. And that sounds like this is what you're talking about, but what's the rule and how, what's the insight that you want your uh, clients and our listeners to to take. Can you sum up that rule? Yeah. So the the one twenty five nine hundred rule is from the speaker's perspective. One twenty five words per minute is their speaking speed, and nine hundred words per minute is their thinking speed. Said another way, the first thing somebody says is fourteen percent of what they're thinking. And in the more complex environments that I mentioned earlier on, at 1,600 words per minute, it could only be 5% of what they're thinking. So the insight for our clients, whether we work with school principals or prison officers inside correctional facilities, bank tellers, board directors, pharmaceutical executives or financial services planners, they consistently say, if I pause and wait for them, they're more likely to say phrases like, hmm, Bev, now that I think about it a little bit longer, what I should have said was, hmm, Bev, what's really important to me is, hmm, Bev, I know we've covered a lot, but I'd like to discuss this more. This will often be preceded by them taking a breath in. Their eyes will go in a different direction. They'll sigh sometimes. And I'm sure in your own work, Bev, when you are comfortable enough to pause and allow the speaker to continue, they start getting to what they mean much faster. Ironically, when you listen deeply, meetings go shorter because you're touching on what matters. And something for everyone to remember is silent and listen 
share the identical letters. So the insight and the application that my clients talk about is when the speaker pauses, it's not a signal for you to jump in and continue talking. Well, you know, um, I'm an executive coach and the essence of coaching and coach training is learning how to stop being like a extroverted lawyer, which I once was, and doing exactly what you said to p- learn the pause. But it's not that easy. And I had to work at it a long time and I'm still working on it. But you kind of summed up some of the the barriers to to that pausing and deep listening um, and uh, provided some guidance about how to um, get past those barriers. Would you tell us about kind of the, the four evil gremlins that some of us have in our heads that, that block our ability to um, pause and listen and, and how to deal with them? I'd encourage everybody to treat silence from the speaker as if it's another word. Listen to the beginning, the middle, and the end of silence. If you treat silence like a word, you have a very different relationship with silence. In the West, we talk about the awkward silence, the pregnant pause, the deafening silence. We have a convoluted relationship with silence. Yet in high context cultures, China, Japan, Korea, the Inuit of North America, the indigenous communities of Australia, the Maori and the Polynesian cultures, silence is a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of authority. It's a sign to gather a group. Often in these cultures, pause is Silence is used at the beginning of a meeting to bring everybody to presence. Now, with regard to the four listening villains, the four listening villains are the dramatic listener, the interrupting listener, the lost listener, and the shrewd listener. And they all came about from the research we described earlier as the way people describe themselves or the way the speaker describes their behavior. So a dramatic listener unproductively uses emotion to connect and move the spotlight from the speaker to themselves. And what we hear in the research is the barrier is, despite their good intention, they're still making it all about them. And this was best summarized in some verbatim that said, I was speaking to my manager about the struggle with the merger and how difficult I was finding it. And they jumped in straight away and said, if you think this merger is hard, let me tell you about the most difficult merger I ever had to work on. Straight away, the spotlight moved off the speaker and onto the listener. So that's an example of the dramatic listener. The interrupting listener is the quiz show contestant that presses the buzzer before the Jeopardy host has finished and they answer the wrong question, or they interrupt and create friction. Their mindset is about time and productivity, but it devalues the relationship. So for the interrupting listening villain, 
they just need to count 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000 in their head or literally bite their tongue in their mouth when, when somebody takes a moment to pause. The, the lost listening villain, uh, they're not sure why they're at the meeting. They, they're turning up because they're polite, uh, but they're also distracted by external things like their, their cell phone, their laptop, their tablet, but they're also lost in their own thoughts and they're described as vague and drifting. And then the final one, the shrewd listening villain, is somebody who's a problem-solving machine but is much more polite than the interrupter. They look like they're listening, but they're trying to solve the current problem, the next problem, and the next problem. And what the speaker says about the shrewd villain is, I know they're trying to fix me. They're not really listening to me. So, Bev, they're the four villains of listening. And listeningquiz.com, you can go and find out a little bit more about which one of those four villains they are for you. It'll take you seven minutes to complete the quiz. So the quiz is on your website, oscartriboli.com, mm. right? And But it'll be in our, it's in our notes also if people want to look it up. Yeah. So I loved your phrase, treat silence like another word. That's a wonderful way of saying it. But what it comes down to, if you look at your four uh, typical bad habits or uh, bad listening styles, it's uh, managing attention. It's managing your own attention. So you just keep sending it back to the speaker back again and again and you you can kind of build the your listening muscle right by just practicing that sending your attention back is that part of how you approach it the difference between good listeners and great listeners is they know this dirty little secret of listening bev and that is it's not your job as the listener to completely comprehend every single nuance that the speaker is talking about. As the listener, your role, whether that's in a one-on-one conversation or in a group setting, your role is to help the speaker understand what they're thinking and what they mean and get them to articulate it. Said another way, it's not your job to listen, to comprehend. It's your job to help the speaker comprehend what they think. And when they do, you talk to the essence, the relationship improves, but more importantly, and commercially, there's less rework, customers are happier, employees stay longer, products meet what the market needs, and profitability is increased because the cost of not listening isn't as evident inside organizations. So again, when we take the time to pause, and help the speaker express what they mean, whether that's individual or group, that's where deep listening takes place. In your podcast, you have guests from many walks of life, different situations in which people listen. Do you find that listening styles vary a lot, whether you're... um, a coach, or uh, maybe you're uh, listening to airplanes landing, something like that. Does it matter the context, or is listening 
deep listening the same regardless of the professional context in which it's uh, being applied? Listening is situational, it's relational, and it's contextual. So it's really critical that people understand you can't deeply listen in every single conversation. We all have listening batteries. Sometimes our listening batteries are green and we're ready for a deep conversation, but sometimes our batteries are orange or yellow or maybe red, and maybe that's not the time to do that. What we learn by listening to air traffic controllers, judges, journalists, FBI hostage negotiators, when we listen to anthropologists, people who study culture over time, when we listen to all these diverse listeners, they listen in a very different way. We, we've interviewed general practitioner doctors as well as emergency theatre doctors, and the way they listen is completely different. They listen differently because the context is very different, yet the principles are consistent. Uh, when I interviewed Ginger in Oregon, she's a professor who trains emergency respondents. And, and I said to Ginger, you know, with time being so critical in emergency situations, you know, your listening must be very different. And she goes, I think it's a fallacy, Oscar, because the, one of the challenges with emergency work is if you're not listening carefully to the detail, you could be making a consequential mistake. So the rush in emergency is a rush that could be asking a rapid fire questions that either the patient or the person supporting the patient may not be able to answer quickly. So listening is situational, it's relational and it's contextual, Bev. You listen very differently in all of these contexts. Now, the power of listening and the value of listening does not sit with the listener. It sits with the speaker. And if you ask this question at the beginning of the conversation, you can calibrate your listening accordingly. I was working with a client in the United Kingdom and they've become quite famous for using this phrase in their industry. But it's Emma's use of this is, is the best example in my client base. And the question is, very simple. The question is at the beginning of every conversation, what would make this a good conversation? Not what would make this a good conversation for you, not what would you like to achieve at the end of this conversation. We want to talk about how to communicate and whether we've researched neurotypical or neurodiverse people, exemplar listeners all have a question or a practice early on in the conversation that calibrates the speaker and the listener about how they want to communicate. And this is how your meetings can become shorter, Bev, if you ask this question. Don't ask the question, what would make this a great conversation for you? Because that person will become very selfish. Every conversation has got three elements, the speaker, the listener, and the dialogue and we want to progress the dialogue, not the position of each player in that conversation. When we ask that question, we can calibrate all the way throughout the meeting and say at the 15-minute mark, the 30-minute mark, the 45-minute mark, Bev, at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned this would be a great conversation. How are we going? And what Emma tells us is quite often her clients or her prospective clients will say, 
Emma, I've got everything we need. Let's cut the meeting short because we're calibrating all the way along. So no matter what your listening context is, this simple question will calibrate how the speaker and you agree on what would make it a productive conversation. Sometimes there are, oh, cultural differences, perhaps. Um, sometimes the the speaker, if given the opportunity, the silence, the opening, will express things that are not factual, they're not about business, but they're emotional, they're um, vaguer than the person can easily articulate. Sometimes in the context of uh, organizations, businesses, um, the uh, listener is uncomfortable with emotion and uncomfortable with vagueness. If a person notices that about themselves, that they start to lose the ability to listen if people start talking about emotion, if you had a client who says, I just can't stand it when they get upset, what would you suggest to them? How is there a listening trick or practice that can help uh, some people become more comfortable staying centered and calm when the speaker is being emotive? Every conversation has emotion, Bev. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what I say, and, and this comes up quite often with executives who perceive themselves as time poor and believe they don't have time for this. A couple of things. When somebody is coming from a place of emotion, they're talking to something that matters deeply to their identity and they're trusting you to share their emotions with you. Number two, emotion is just another piece of content. Your layering of meaning, I don't want to deal with emotion, um, is your response. So you need to check in with yourself first and understand, is what they're saying perceived by you as emotional because you're struggling to deal with somebody expressing emotion? Or is that an issue for that person? Now, practically for the speaker and the listener in that context, it's a huge signal. One, that they trust you to share the emotion. And number two, it's it matters to them. It's important. It's critical that you listen. Now, as the listener, you may struggle and go, oh, I haven't got time for this. They will continue to express that emotion until they feel that somebody has heard them and listened to them. If you don't deal with that emotion, it will show up in other parts of the organization. It may show up in their performance. It may show up in their interaction with other people in the organization. It may show up with customers. It may show up with suppliers. To that person you mentioned, Bev, I would say it's critical that you or somebody else deals with that emotion because it will show up somewhere else in action in the organization. Yeah, I didn't coaching, of course, when we get beyond talking about um, kind of theory and facts, data, and start getting into expressions of emotion, the coach knows, okay, now we're starting to um, get deeper. And it's, it's, it's almost a comforting feeling. Um, perhaps one thing I've 
suggested to people who are not happy dealing with emotion is to practice. I mean, practice with your kids, practice, look for opportunities and just notice your reactions, kind of be conscious of how uh, you respond to emotion when uh, you're not in charge and, and, and kind of practice feeling comfortable. And then you can take it to the, to the work context sometimes that, that seems to sometimes be helpful is uh, knowing that if you're uncomfortable with emotion, it's about you. It's not about them. And and one of the great books I would recommend, and I recommend regularly to clients who have this situation, is by Yale professor Mark Brackett. He's written an amazing book with groundbreaking research called Permission to Feel, and and his book and his app, which helps you develop an emotional fluency around 96 adjectives to describe your feeling, mm-hmm. your emotion, is a really potent way to progress your emotional fluency. That's a good suggestion. Well, gosh, I could continue this conversation a long time, but we are getting close to the the end of the time we have for the for the podcast. So I want to ask you um, if we have listeners out there who are thinking, oh gosh, I could be a better listener. Um, how do I start? And of course, we've mentioned the book and, and your website, which is full of good information, but say there's somebody out there listening and they're getting ready for the rest of their day and they want to be a better listener today. Do you have any suggestions for somebody to, to be a better listener? listener right away to, to start the path toward deep listening? Tracking 1,410 workplace listeners for the last five years, Bev, three things mm-hmm. are really consistent. Number one, control your electronic distractions. I'm not saying switch them off, but control them, be deliberate. Uh, some of these things you can automate. You can switch off notifications based on your calendar in most software. Uh, whether that's on your wrist, on your watch, or whether that's on your phone, or whether that's on some kind of device. Number two, drink a glass of water before every conversation and drink a glass of water throughout the conversation. And number three, before you go into any conversation, just take three deep breaths. We know the deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. And when you struggle, with somebody either with emotion or silence just take a deep breath in through your nose all the way down to the bottom of your lungs and then out through your mouth and that will help you stay present and move from a distracted listener to a deep and impactful leader thank you those are that's a good trio of suggestions well i want to say again that the title of the book is How to Listen, and the subtitle is Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication by Oscar Triboli. Um, I um, have the website in the notes, and I'm just really grateful uh, to you, Oscar, for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Bev. Today, we've been talking with Oscar Triboli about why and how to become a better listener. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. 
Today's tip is that a difficult conversation will be easier if you concentrate on listening instead of being distracted by what you want to say next. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating.